ARPA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of ARPA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles and joining me today, all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, is Dr Gerald Hickson, the founder of the Vanderbilt Centre for Patient and Professional Advocacy. We're going to talk about professionalism in the healthcare context. Professionalism is key to keeping patients and practitioners safe and effective, but a crisis magnifies the need to pursue professionalism. The COVID-19 pandemic has prompted health professionals, especially leaders, to rise to the occasion. We look to Jerry for insights on how health practitioners prepare for a crisis, how practices changed in this current crisis, and how this flows down to the patients and their support networks. So let's get into it. Welcome, Jerry. Tash, it's an honor to be with you today. I am the Joseph Ross uh, Professor of Medical Education and Administration and a professor of pediatrics at Vanderbilt, uh, but have spent uh, 30 years plus thinking about how we make medicine kinder and safer. So I'm, I'm hoping, Jerry, that you could start off by talking to us about your background in the context of this professionalism topic and a brief summary of your experiences. Natasha, my background is as a pediatrician. As a pediatrician, I often got asked questions about how do we encourage uh, children to behave in ways that are constructive and positive. And uh, I then became a researcher. And uh, it's interesting how that work uh, ultimately led me to have concerns about teams and how we bring humans together in ways that maximize the chance that they play well together. And one of the things that the research made very clear is that the vast majority of individuals who are professional are professional. They come to work, they know what they should do, they work well with others, Uh, but medicine's inherently stressful. And on occasion, and all of us are subject to slips and lapses. And when that happens, Uh, Going back to my pediatric roots, it's about providing feedback early and often, but in a constructive, non-judgmental way. And then unfortunately, we identify the fact that there's a small subset of individuals that uh, have problems with playing well with others regularly. And in that circumstance, there has to be an organized approach. And so we've spent the last 20 years working on that organized approach. How do we maximize the chance? that we quickly identify and help individuals get back on track. You spoke about working working well in teams, having a safe, effective place for feedback to be given, received and managed. Are there any other aspects as a health practitioner working with other practitioners and with patients and their families that comprise professionalism? We don't spend enough time thinking about what it really means to be a professional. Professionals, whether pharmacists, nurses, physicians, anyone who walks in, they have special skills and ability. And that's awesome. And we expect our professionals to model those technical and cognitive skills, but we know that's not sufficient. Because when we think about our own experiences as patients or as members of the team, not only do I expect you to have certain skills and ability, I want you to have certain characteristics that you model when you are using those skills. I want you to be concerned about me as a fellow human. I want you to be concerned about what this means to me. I want you to be committed to being sure that I understand your communication. I wanna be sure that you're respectful 
of who I am and my values. And when we put that all together, that's what defines being a professional and professionalism. And the last thing that I just think we all need to think about is that we also have a responsibility to help in regulation of each other because medicine is stressful. And we do need the encouragement and support of each other. Uh, and all of us need to welcome that. And then how does that flow down to patient safety? I want to be sure that the skills and ability of all individual team members can, in fact, be used to the best of the patients that we serve. And one of the things that we know by our research studies, we know that when humans are disrespectful, it's hard to work with those individuals. Think about the last time that someone was disrespectful to you. What did that do to your willingness to speak to them? In a medical circumstance, what does that do to my willingness to speak up when I have information and I'm not sure about it? What does it do to my willingness to ask you for help if you've been rude to me and I'm just expecting you to do that again? And so one of the things that the last five to 10 years have taught us from a research standpoint is those interactions are so incredibly important and rudeness and disrespect, which are inconsistent with being professional, get in the way of right outcomes of care. And so that's why it's so important. And in your experience, do patients know to raise it if they don't receive professional care? You know, that's, a, again, a really important question. Our research was initially based upon the observations of patients and families. So we know that patients and families experience disrespect. We know that a small subset of those patients who experience disrespect will actually speak up. And it's important to recognize that every one of the times that patients and families speak up with their stories, their observations of disrespectful behavior, it really is a gift. Because what we've learned is that if organizations will, in fact, record those stories, provide appropriate feedback to the parties involved, they can identify their dysfunctional systems and hopefully then be committed to making that better. They also identify the professionals that just need a little help that currently are not functioning as professionals, but can if we have an organized approach. So uh, as patients and families, we see it and we experience it. We may not use medically sophisticated language in sharing our concerns, but our research team has made very clear that those observations and stories by families tell us so much about what we need to know about our health systems. From the, from the patient perspective, how they might feel comfortable and empowered to speak up when it's outside of a comfortable, normal, everyday environment for them? You know, when we think about a patient, they walk in, they may have medical needs. They may have fear about the circumstances that they're in. They feel dependent upon the healthcare system. There are these gradients that exist that at times are very destructive. Uh, and those hierarchies make it very hard for patients and families to speak up. And then you add on top of that all of the other cultural factors that make it hard for us to speak to each other. So number one, it's difficult. Number two, we haven't traditionally in the practice of medicine, inform families that we really want to hear from them. 
And not only do we need to take the proactive approach to let them know we need to hear, when they do speak up, we need to honor that and not dismiss it or respond in a non-respectful way. So there are lots and lots of reasons. So there's some actually good studies. We at Vanderbilt collect better than 6,000 of those family stories a year where we have not met patients' and families' expectations. There's a great paper by Annenberg that suggests that for every one of those reports, when someone's willing to speak up and share, there's somewhere between 70 and 100 where individuals have the same experiences and don't speak up. That's a tragedy. But from our standpoint, both as researchers and managers of patient safety and quality, we want to take advantage of those families that will speak up. And so when someone does share a story with us, there's something there that's meaningful that we need to respond to. It may simply be a communication issue that needs to be clarified. It may be a serious problem, but it has to be treated with respect. So we've spoken about patients, but there are other people around um, health practitioners, their colleagues. Um, Do they speak up? Some team members will speak up. But just like patients and families, there are hierarchical issues that get in the way. Nurses to physicians, nurses to pharmacists, other professionals. And so that gradient occurs. And then there are the gradients about rank So in our country, a professor or a registrar or all of the titles that we put on individuals often get in the way and create this barrier for speaking up. And then there are also barriers that occur because when a pediatrician works with a surgeon, there are things that by definition I don't understand and vice versa. So all of those things come together to conspire to reduce sharing so that we know that staff will see what we refer to as disturbances in the force. And one of the things that we did at Vanderbilt that really empowered people speaking up is to have an intentional strategy. Mm. Because at the end of the day, there's a common goal. We we all want the same thing. Um, And I guess speaking of having a common goal, we've had over the past um, 12 plus months, a a really a different um, kind of common goal in this COVID-19 pandemic crisis. And I'm hoping that we can talk about what a crisis means to professionalism and how we have strong professional practice and structures in place in order to prepare us for a crisis. Crisis may be unexpected. So within the Vanderbilt environment, within the past couple of years, we had a terrible tragedy where we administered to a patient a wrong medication that resulted in death. That immediately created a crisis for the team. And professionals need a plan to deal with predictable issues that come in a crisis. Back earlier this year, I sat, not very uh, thoughtful, in a condo with a hurricane coming, and I decided it would not affect me. And then we have circumstances like COVID where this pandemic is coming. And in all of those crisis situations, you need a plan in advance. The time to create a plan is not after the cases of COVID are coming in or after the rain has started in a hurricane or a typhoon. You got to have a plan. But the plan has to call out specifically 
the notion of how we support professionals to be professional during a crisis, because with COVID is a perfect example. Those teams of professionals have had to change the way they practice. The way we thought was the best way to ventilate patients turned out not to be the right way. We had to be able to have a plan, make observations about what's working and what's not working, and then to be able to be nimble enough to change the way we practice. We had to be able to understand how we were going to keep team members safe and patients safe when we were running low on protective equipment, when we didn't have enough face masks, when we did not have perhaps enough ventilators. So professionalism becomes important because the professional understands the need to take their skills and ability, but then to adapt those skills and ability with that compassion, with that humility, that we need to be modeling care all the time. It just is the same thing dialed up tenfold. That's the challenge. And this is one of the other reasons why health practices, hospitals, systems, when they put their management team to the table to sit and plan out how we're going to handle a crisis where someone dies unexpectedly or a circumstance where we have to deal with the aftermath of storms or a pandemic, there's got to be somebody sitting at the table whose sole role is to think about how are we going to support our professionals? What are they going to need? What communication do they need? How do we tell them what to expect? And if we have to change the way we are providing ventilation for patients, how do we communicate that in a way that quickly will result in change? After you're done with this episode and you're still thinking about professionalism, you might be interested in hearing a discussion about one end of that spectrum. Let's hear a clip from Professor Ron Patterson in our episode, Sexual Misconduct in the Health Professions. And he's talking about the importance of trust. We trust that when uh, we're asked to undergo an examination by a doctor or other health practitioner, that that's being done for appropriate reasons. So it's an issue of trust. Uh, it's also an issue of power imbalance for objectivity. Uh, and it's important for quality of care uh, and for patient safety. Did I pique your interest? Please go and download that show or any other episode by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player. And let's get back to Jerry. You've mentioned that it's not necessarily about the specific actions and processes that we have, but it's those under, those underpinning values, that ability to to have to have humility and to value and prioritize good communication. Could you talk about that from a leadership perspective? You know, it's it's uh, fascinating. We finished an interview with 105 uh, U.S. health system leaders. And we asked them, what were the things that helped you? They all went back first to values. They went to values, values, values. It's about having them stated. It's about having them on the wall. It's about having them distilled down to sound bites that can be shared in the Vanderbilt environment. You, you know, I make those, I serve my highest priority. It's who we are. And we are going to take care of our team members. That's the messaging. And when that started and when it's heard regularly and the behaviors of leaders align with those principles, how much stress it takes out 
of the individual who now is worried, are we going to have enough ventilators? Are we going to have enough equipment? Because they know the leaders are committed and committed to them and the patients we serve. In a, in a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic, which is really omnipresent, it really affects um, practitioners as, as people as well as practitioners. How, what's the challenge to kind of reinforce those values when it is surrounding you at every level of how you work and how you live your life and how you interact with all people around you? You know, one of the things that our CEO at Vanderbilt did that I just find such a great practice. Any communication that came out started with our core values and ended with an affirmation of our core values. So if we are bringing people together virtually to share, if we're sending out correspondence, if he's going to send out a message online, it's going to start with who we are. It's going to end with who we are. You can't say those things enough because I need to hear them as a team member to be reminded when I'm in one of those moments, I just want to throw my hands up. That's a critical part of the equation. Now, a second part of the equation goes back to having somebody at the table who's thinking about supporting professionals, which means that if I have someone who does in fact have a meltdown and it potentially threatens the team, I need to be able to have a culture where people will report those things so quickly we can get somebody on site in certain circumstances or we can send feedback that this is not consistent with who we are, that has to continue. But the other thing has been modeled by our colleagues at uh, the University of Southern California who at Keck Medicine, they've done such a great job. They have a psychiatrist there that I'm a great admirer of that put together a set of tools and resources to be prepared for all of the things that humans need. You made the point that this pandemic has been everywhere. And so many of their employees couldn't get home because of restrictions placed upon masking and other practices. Well, where do they spend the night? Where's the food that they need to eat? How do we continue to uh, affirm individuals who are going above and beyond and getting restaurants who were not at that time having individuals in their restaurants, they were able and actively donated lots and lots of food. Those are the things that are needed. Interesting to hear those small pockets of, of hope and, and people rallying to innovate um, to get us through together as a collective. Jerry, do you have any other examples of uh, challenges or issues that have emerged from the pandemic that you've seen or that you've experienced as part of your practice and research? I think the thing that I would first emphasize, and one of the questions we were really interested in as researchers, is when you do have a pandemic, when you know that everybody's going to be placed under stress, and we have all of the political discord and everything else that people bring from home, is everybody going to have trouble? And one of the things that we learned is that our team members, nurses, physicians, advanced practice professionals, those that had difficulty prior to the pandemic, 
the two and a half to 3% of individuals, they had more challenges in the practice of medicine. Those who had no challenges before worked their way through the crisis. So one of the things it did tell us is that we need the help of the 2.5 to 3%. So let's be proactive. Let's get out and help anticipate and support, but let's continue to hold everybody accountable for excellence and not, let's not look the other way. So philosophically, that was approach we took. Now, some of the stories, unfortunately, is that some of the individuals, and this again is why surveillance is so important, wound up in circumstances where they came to work, but team members were concerned that they were having difficulty and did not appear fit to perform. And in those circumstances, our response as fellow professionals is to be sure that we get them the support they need because we can't have them continuing to provide care if it's not going to be safe care. And so therefore leaders of departments or practices have to be put on notice that if you get a call that we need some help for a kind of clinician or nurse to help, no questions, just provide the care. And that's again, part of the need for partnership and a management team that's ready there to respond to those individual stories. And what can team members and health practitioners do to intervene and increase the, the level of professionalism across, across the team, across the hospital, across the practice? So these are the things that we need to do all the time anyway. And so I want to not move from that because fundamentally, the fundamentals are the fundamentals. It just is that they become even more important when we're facing a crisis. And so the first thing we do is that we model professionalism. Now, one of the stories that I learned was a story about an administrative team where a senior leader of a health system to remain nameless what is a great supporter of professionalism and articulated the need to be a professional. But some of this individual's lieutenants who worked for this individual were not behaving in such a professional way. And so it's important for leaders and all of us to understand that the people who work with us need to model those same principles that we affirm are important because others will ascribe that unprofessional behavior to me when it's not my intent. So number one, at all levels, we continue to be reminded of what it means to be a professional and what our core values are. Number two, it means that we provide feedback to each other early and often in a non-judgmental, respectful way. I may be unhappy with you and I may want to provide feedback in a non-respectful way, but what are the consequences if I do? And so it becomes a surveillance system whether you are performing well, whether I'm performing well, we need each other's support. And if those brief cups of coffee don't seem to get results, then I must remember next step that we have a reporting system. 
so that individuals are able to go either anonymously and almost never anonymously report by name that I now am concerned and the nature of that story. And then I must trust that the organization has my back, will protect me when I report in good faith. And when I see actions take place, it reinforces that we really are committed to a culture of safety and respect. So those are the things that we do. And the other issue is speaking up about how to make our systems better. One of the things that this has taught us is that our systems are good, but they were not prepared with the notion of would we have enough ICU beds? Would we have enough ventilators? Would we have enough protective equipment? And so it's amazing to me how often team members who are working at the bedside see what we need to do. So those same reporting systems that we use when somebody gets off track in their professionalism also are critically important when we make an observation about how we can better take care of a new challenge that we have not seen before. That's why teams are so important. And that's why respect is so important because if it fills that team, people are eager to speak up. They are eager to share their observations and from those things come what drive change. And as I've asked at the beginning of the conversation, Jerry, how does this flow on for patient safety? What's your vision for increased patient safety as a result of those things being in place? Patient safety occurs because we have intentionally designed systems because we're constantly working to make them better, but we can't do that if patients don't speak up, if staff don't speak up, when they are facing things in the workplace that are not right. Number one. Number two, we can't deliver high reliable care unless all of us together are practicing as professionals and that we don't tolerate me when I'm difficult to work with. You know, one of the things that we all need to do and we need to be reminded and have been reminded by the pandemic is that when I walk into the room, do I make it easier or harder for other team members to do their job? And we've got to remember that that doesn't ever get away from us and it becomes part of who we have to be. And so patients will always have a great role if we will empower them to speak up and if we will pay attention and if we will listen to them other than some survey. Our staff members will continue to help us get better if we in fact listen to them and we value their statements and we act on their observations and we reinforce when we've done it. Those things make all the difference. Jerry, thank you for helping us think differently and deeply about professionalism and also um, for reminding us how leadership, respect and communication can affect the healthcare experience for all, particularly in a crisis. Thank you for the interest. I so admire the work uh, that's occurring and uh, you know, it's an honor to be associated with uh, opera in any way. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in for today's conversation. Please subscribe to Taking Care in your podcast player so you get all the latest episodes. And as you wait for the next one, be sure to browse our archives for many more great conversations. Email us at communications at if you have any questions or comments. See you next time. <laughs>